0: Well, it's our pleasure to be here with you this morning, and, and uh, praise the Lord for the privilege to be able to sing Christ-centered, gospel-centered songs with you, to worship him. That's what we're here for today, amen, to worship Jesus Christ. We're going to do so today as we continue, uh, in and we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, so if you could be turning there, and we're going to start in verse 1. In the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for this wonderful privilege to be able to be together today to worship you. God, thank you for your great love for us. Thank you for giving us Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thank you for our forgiveness. Thank you for um, our redemption, our freedom in him. Uh, To know that you will sustain us and allow us in Christ to be presented guiltless before you. God, thank you for all of the wonderful promises. Thank you for who you are. God, may we honor you today as we look into your word. I I pray, Lord, that you would uh, give me grace to, to serve well, to serve these people well today. God, give us grace to hear your word and to understand it rightly as you intend for it to be understood so that we can rightly uh, know you better and rightly apply it and glorify you with our lives. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, before we get too deep into the text, let's talk first about its uh, recipient, the church at Corinth. Okay, Paul is writing to the church at Corinth around 55 A.D., And this city was a major port city, a capital at the time of the province of Achaia, so the southern uh, portion of Greece. It was inhabited, of course, by Greeks, also Roman officials and businessmen, uh, other ancient Near East peoples, including many Jews. The town of Corinth, the city of Corinth, was known for its corruption. It's a great thing to be known for. It was known for its corruption. So much so that the people of the day, if somebody was acting in a corrupt way, would call them somebody who was acting like a corinthian there was a word for it to say you behave like a corinthian and that would be a name that would be given to people so that was the church's uh, or the town's reputation paul came to corinth on his second missionary journey we can read about that in acts chapter 18 and it says there that he was able to stay and minister there at corinth for a year and a half for about a year and a half and really uh, much so unhindered a guy named Crispus, who was the ruler of the synagogue, he believed. So the ruler of the, of the Corinthian synagogue believed on Jesus Christ and was saved. And the church started meeting in his house, which happened to be right next door to the synagogue. So if you can imagine, on, on Saturday, the Jews would come together at the synagogue, and on the next day, the Christians would come together at the house of the man who used to lead the synagogue to worship Jesus Christ. That was the scenario there in that town. And the man who became the new ruler of the synagogue was named Sosthenes. If you remember hearing that, that name was mentioned in in the first couple verses in this this book. Uh, I have not seen that it's the same guy. I have not seen that it's not the same guy. So we don't know. So we'll leave it at that, okay? But it's the same name. Interesting nonetheless. Now, Apollos came after Paul. So Paul spent a year and a half there. Uh, planning, establishing, teaching, uh, winning people to Christ, and then Apollos came after him, and if you will, pastor the church moving forward. Now there are several problems in the church at Corinth, and many times when we think about the book itself, we think of all the stuff in between the beginning and the end of this, and all of the problems that Paul was addressing in this letter. This is actually the second letter that Paul wrote to the church. The first one also addressing other issues. Uh, but that one wasn't... Uh, that one wasn't inspired for all of us. That was just for Corinth, and this is the one that we get. So we'll, we're, what we call 1 Corinthians, to them it was 2nd, okay? Um, but the church struggled to get the world, the sinfulness of the world, out of their own hearts. Now, ironically, they had no problem ostracizing unbelievers because of their sin. So if you can picture this, uh, the church, seeing unbelievers in their sin, didn't want to have anything to do with them, thinking that they were being righteous in doing so. Not a good plan for evangelism. But they would do things amongst themselves while they continued in their own sin unrepentant. Do you see the problem there, the disconnect? That's a backwards view, isn't it? Uh, In all of this, they evidenced a, a view consistent with a high view of self, thinking much and thinking often of me, and a low view of God. As if, God existed for their own good pleasure. So this religious worldliness evidenced itself in in different forms, one of them being sexual sin. The church seemed to lack self-control, and they also were rebuked by Paul for turning a blind eye to the sexual sin of others in the church, as if going unnoticed. There seemed to be this uh, allegiance in the church to celebrity pastors. You ever heard that terminology before? Uh, We know it because... We say it in our culture today, but next in this chapter in first corinthians They have people arguing with each other saying I am of paul. I am of apollos. I am of peter and they Align themselves with these preachers Okay over and over in this passage. We're going to see a lot of vertical viewing Which paul's trying to point them to did you notice as I was reading that I said of god in christ by god his grace our Lord, over and over and over. Paul is trying to reorient their view to be a vertical view. Them and their Lord and Savior. Right? The Corinthians were often stuck in this horizontal view. Thinking about themselves and thinking about others and what they thought of them. So we're going to have this constant struggle between the vertical and the horizontal as we read through this. And this horizontal gave them cause for this love or allegiance to these celebrity, if you will, pastors. The church also struggled with arrogance. They desired to maintain a status of wisdom, a prominence in people's eyes. There's that horizontal coming back again. Uh, as a result, many of them didn't like Paul's ministry. Paul, who was often in prison. Paul, who was often in chains. Paul, who was often rebuked and condemned by people around him. Uh, he wasn't, he, of his own accord, wasn't much of a speaker. Wasn't much to look at. And so, because of those things, they didn't have a high regard for Paul. Now, are those things to have a high regard or no high regard for a person for? No, of course not, unless we're thinking about the here and the now. Um, also, legalism. You'd think, well, legalism, how is that? They have all these sins going on in the church. Shouldn't they be all doing all the right things if they're legalists? Well, no, because the point is of legalism is to write your own laws and to justify yourself. And so the Corinthian church was arguing about uh, the beliefs that they have, the convictions this person has, the rules that they keep and follow, the freedoms that they thought they had, arguments of conscience. And they were uh, working against each other in these things. And so Paul rebukes them for this. And then finally, there seemed to be a spiritual gift battle going on at the church of Corinth. Kind of like this, who has the coolest, most mysterious gift game? Who can perform it better than anybody else? If you think, future in the book of 1 Corinthians, there's a reason why Paul had to, had to rebuke them and say that not everybody gets the same gifts. And that not all the gifts are superior. Tongues being the main one. That he said, do not value that, that highly. And he had to tell them, do everything decently and in order. Now, why would he have to say that if they weren't doing everything indecently and out of order? So you want to picture a church that values the coolness and the, the mystery of tongues, and they 're almost wanting to outdo each other and all fighting for this really cool, mysterious gift and Paul has to say, "Hey church that 's not where it 's at. Calm down, stop trying to outdo each other, do everything decently in order and in order." Uh, these are some of the things that the church struggled with, so overall, there seems to have been a consumeristic culture in the Corinthian. Church and it was true of the town as well So it remained in them as a people in their knowledge and in their culture this idea of what's in it for me It's a good thing. We're not like that in the u.s. Right? Uh, Here's a couple of examples of us not being that way Uh, UPS, what is their slogan? What can brown do? For you, how about burger king? We had to think of that one at burger king. You can always have it your way. That's right. <laughs> Have you ever heard somebody say they were shopping for a church? As a pastor, I've heard that many times. Where does that idea and that word even come from, the idea of shopping? That is consumerism, isn't it? And we struggle with the idea of what the best church is for us, and the answer is, the short answer is, that the one that God can use you in for his glory and for the good of others, so that you can love the Lord your God and love your neighbors yourself. Amen? Amen. So with that information in mind about Corinth and with that gentle little nudge of a reminder for us Let's look at the text Verse one says paul called by the will of god To be an apostle of christ jesus Does anyone remember hearing of saul of tarsus the young pharisee When he heard the gospel for the first time Found it beautiful Bowed on bended knees and with broken heart and called on the glorious savior jesus christ for his salvation is that how that happened No, we know that's not what happened uh, Saul of tarsus the young pharisee was growing in prominence as a persecutor Of the church. What was the will of saul? To hate christ and to hate the church That was the will of saul. This says paul paul remember his name changed to paul called by the will of god to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, in Acts nine we see Paul on the road to Damascus, going outside of Jerusalem, expanding the boundaries of persecution against the church, leading the way, charging ahead, and he's abruptly stopped. We love in Scripture so many times it says, "But God." This is Paul's "But God" moment as he's going to Damascus to persecute Jesus Christ. He's con- he's convicted of and the church. God intervenes, and Paul's called right there to be an apostle by the will of God. And Paul didn't get his authority. Think about this. What is the Corinthian church all about and this idea of consumerism? Paul didn't get his authority because he was a New York Times best-selling author. That's not what made Paul prominent. It's not because he had a million social media followers. That didn't make Paul special. He didn't have a megachurch. He wasn't being a sought-after conference speaker, Right? His authority didn't come from the favor of man Paul's authority came from the decree of God Because it was the will of God And Paul writes this, it says, with and our brother Sosthenes So Sosthenes would have been helping Paul in some way Potentially uh, Paul dictating to him and writing out by hand this letter As we said before, he may or may not have been the former leader The number two leader of the, the synagogue Wouldn't that have been amazing though? If, if Crispus had put his faith in Christ and left the synagogue and then Sosthenes comes up in his place and hears the gospel and puts his faith and trust in Christ, and that'd be amazing. Uh, if not that, the name Sosthenes sounds awfully Greek, doesn't it? Uh, and think about that. How many times in the New Testament do we have to read about uh, from Paul and Peter and others saying, God has given us Jesus Christ and he's torn down the wall, the barrier, between these peoples. So Jews and Gentiles can be one in Christ. Either way, the idea of Paul saying here our brother Sosthenes is an amazing thing that is done by the grace of God and for his glory. So we praise the Lord for that. Verse 2 says to the church of God that is in Corinth. So this is is, uh, right in the face of that idea of the celebrity pastor. The church of God. It wasn't the church of Paul who planted the church, if we want to think in human terms. Paul did, right? But this isn't Paul's church. It's not the church of Apollos. Who came in behind him and pastored? Now, in modern days, it's not the church of Piper. It's not the church of MacArthur. Certainly not the church of Molyneux. It is the church of God. And he writes, To those, it says in verse 2, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. So we need to ask the question here what kind of sanctification are we talking about? What is this word sanctification? And biblically, there's three ways we want to look at this term, the idea of sanctification. Number one is positional sanctification. This is the idea of being set apart. When we hear the gospel and God works in us, we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. We are set apart. We are put into the body of Christ. Okay, that's positional sanctification. Uh, Then the next is what we're doing uh, after we follow him, we begin to follow him, and we start to grow and change. And this is often called progressive sanctification. Okay, there's some grace in that word progressive, isn't there? Uh, this is not instantaneous. This is not, I'm perfect. It's progressive sanctification. This is the process of being changed and conformed into the image of Christ. That's where we are right now, if you put your faith and trust in Christ before today. And then, finally, there's perfect sanctification or complete sanctification. Uh, when we will see Christ, we'll be made to be just like him. It's done. Amen? <laughs> and it's finished. We are just like him forevermore. So we have these three ideas of sanctification. So if we're going to ask the question, which one is happening here, we've got to look at the text and see what it says. And it says there at the next phrase, called to be saints together. So there's our answer. It's positional. This is being set apart in Christ. Uh, however, we're going to see these other uh, points of sanctification progressive and complete as we continue in this passage Moving along the text it says with all those So the saints that are called to be together with all those who in every place Call upon the name of our lord jesus christ both their lord and ours So you start to get an idea of what paul's doing here Remember the struggles of the corinthian church Where did their sainthood come from? Wasn't because they were amazing wasn't because they figured out all the clues. It's because God did it, right? Uh, their sainthood came from Jesus Christ, from his substitutionary death, burial, and then his resurrection. So every Christian, from every tribe, tongue, and nation, uh, every academic background, socioeconomic background, everyone has the same God, the same Savior, hearing the same gospel, and so therefore has the same righteous standing before God in jesus christ So this was a positive reminder of where their hope and where their standing is found And a reminder that they were no better Than any other church How could we outdo the righteousness of christ? That is given to us And put on our account Remember abraham believed god and it was counted to him As righteousness we can't outdo That righteousness, so there's no room for superiority in that way Verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, it again, in a different way in verse 4, I give thanks to my God always for you. Again, because you're so amazing? No, because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Now, verses 5 through 8 are going to detail the grace that was given by God that these verses alluded to that Paul thanked God for and there are three gifts of grace that we want to uh, find in these verses uh, they're distinct three distinct gifts in a way uh, but they're also connected one seems to flow into the next which seems to flow into the next so we want to uh, pull them apart so we can see them but we also need to remember that they don't live separate from a, from each other does that make sense and we're going to call these gifts numbers 2 3 and 4 because the number one gift already happened in the previous verses. That's our salvation in Christ. Okay, we can't get gifts two, three, and four if number one didn't happen. So does that make sense? So salvation is number one. These are the gifts that God graciously gives to his saints as they work out their salvation. So let's go ahead and look at verse five. It says, That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and in all knowledge. Now we're going to cheat a little bit here and look down to verse 7 where it says, so you are not lacking in any gift. And we want to look there because if we understand that, then we can rightly understand that Paul here is referring to gifts given by God to the saints in order to help them to speak the truth and then to apprehend that truth. So God, and this is in eighty fifty-five. Remember, they're not reading the book of 1 Corinthians, They've been doing this before the book got to them, okay? In some ways, we might say, praise the Lord that we have this, and it's done, and we know it's good, right? But God has gifted the church in such a way that people can speak the truth, speak the truth of God's word, and the the word speech there is the word, Greek word logos, which often is translated as word. So speaking the truth, the word from God, and then God gifts us as well to be able to hear that truth, be able to understand it, and not just be able to hear it and know what it is and acknowledge that it's there, but to apprehend it, to make it happen, to have a knowledge of it. Does that make sense? So God's gifted us in these ways. So this is the instruction of God. This is the instruction of God given to us. It says in verse 6, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you're not lacking in any gift. The testimony of Christ confirmed that idea there. Think about James. It says that faith without works is dead. Uh, When you teach someone how to read, just imagine teaching someone how to read, would you be satisfied and, and have joy when that person says, I now know how to read, thank you, and then walks away and you never see them actually read anything. How do you know that you've accomplished the task? When your student begins reading. (laughs) They actually have to do it. They have a knowledge of it when they're participating in it, right? This is the testimony of Christ being confirmed amongst the church. God has gifted them through instruction in all speech, proclaiming the word of God, in all knowledge, apprehending and understanding the word of God. And as they do that, because they're in Christ, that next step of grace slides right into the living out of what they've understood. So in a sense, we're going to call this our occupation. God didn't save us just to hear the word and to acknowledge it as true, but then the next phase to practice it, to live it out. So, so far we have our instruction from the Lord and we have our occupation that's given from him. The Christian has been redeemed and bought with a price, and lives to be pleasing to God. Second Corinthians five nine. We make it our ambition and everything, whether at home or away, to be pleasing to Him. That's what we're called to be. Okay. So Second uh, Timothy three sixteen and seventeen some verses to help us with this understanding. Second uh, Timothy three sixteen says all Scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for a proof. For correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete. And the word the idea there is perfect. So is there a hole in the Bible? H-O-L-E, that we would say, we well, you know the Bible is really helpful, but there's some other things we gotta learn in order to do this. The Bible says it's complete. It has everything we need for the man of God to be complete, equipped for everything. Good work. 2 Timothy 2.15 says this, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the truth. A lot of times we use that verse like a proof text and we, we think about the rightly handling the word of truth part, which is obviously very important. We want to rightly handle the word of truth, but what does that verse say proceeding that is the fruit of rightly handling the word of truth? That the person of God would be an approved worker. How do you know you're living your life the way that is pleasing to God? Because you have rightly divided the word of truth. Those things go hand in hand. You can't separate the two. Okay? So that's what we're called to do. Now, go again. Remember the Corinthian church and their spiritual gift competition that they were having. Uh, Paul is teaching them right away at the beginning of this letter that the accurate preaching, the teaching of the word of God, the learning— and the application of that truth that that is the evidence that God has gifted the church it wasn 't amazing signs and wonders. Paul says church, you are hearing the truth of God. People amongst you are speaking the Word of God you 're hearing and understanding the Word of God, and you 're beginning to put it into practice that 's every indication we need that God has gifted you that 's where it 's at that 's the epicenter of it it 's not cool tricks. It's not smoke and mirrors. I'm humble and I'm hearing the truth of Christ and I'm living it out in my life. God's gifted you. You have the spiritual gifts. And that's the evidence of it. Okay? So, God graciously gifts us with salvation. Then graciously gifts us with instruction so that we know what to do with and in our standing in Christ while we're here. During our time here of occupation. And in our occupation, the things that we do... And then, reminds us of our hope. Our eager anticipation that continually urges us forward in our walk. This is not a pick-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps kind of faith. For many reasons, but for now, looking forward here, this next part of verse 7 says, As you wait. So there's that time of occupation, this time of our living here and now. And what are you waiting for? As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end. And this is an amazing word here guiltless. Sustain you to the end, guiltless, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. We usually frown on waiting. Don't we? Uh, But is this worth the wait? I'd say so. Our our efforts, our works, our faithfulness, those are not the things that sustain us. If it was up to our work, if it was up to our faithfulness, how well would we be sustained? Would we fall short (laughs) of the glory of God? And so when we think about the revealing of Jesus Christ, if we are not in Him, do we look forward to that day with eager anticipation? When we have not repented of our sin and when Christ's blood has not been put to us and the Christ, and Christ's righteousness has not been put to our account, do we look forward to the day of Christ with eager anticipation or with dread? We're not happy about that day if we're not in him, but by God's grace, praise the Lord, we are. And John 10 says this. Christ said, God, uh, Basically, he says that God's going to snatch us up, right? In our salvation, God is the one who snatches us up. And he says, no one will ever pluck you out of my hand. is that an amazing promise? That's where we are. We're in the hand of Christ. Nobody can ever pluck us out of his hand. He does sustain us. And he did, he did so by paying our debt in full on the cross. It's done. We have been and we will be declared righteous before a holy God. So we can look forward to this day with eager anticipation, which makes this time of often frustrating growth, mixed with successes and sufferings, all the more sweet. We're on the winning side by the grace of God and through the shed blood of Christ. So we look to God for our salvation our instruction to know how to live in this day, our occupation, with eager anticipation for what's to come, and namely Jesus Christ himself. But if we fall into the trap of having that high view of self, having a low view of God, remaining stuck in the horizontal and forgetting about our relationship with him, we can so easily go back and resort to our consumeristic tendencies. If we want results right here, right now, those things often can uh, they show up in the form of lustful desires for pleasure. They show up in the form of wealth, uh, health, and on and on that could go. We might default to putting our hope in a person, uh, even a celebrity, or a friend, or most likely our own selves. Nobody talks to you more than you do. Do you know that? <laughs> Nobody talks to you more than you do. And, and when we're being totally honest, we probably should admit that we don't trust anybody more than we trust ourselves. And when we're scared and we want to hang on to control, lest something bad should happen, who do we allow to hold on to that control? It's usually ourselves, isn't it? But this is wrong thinking. People fail. Celebrities fail. Friends fail. And we will fail. That's why we need the gospel. That's why we need Christ. So Paul reminds us, church, of where the power of these promises lie. It's not because we've got it figured out. It's not because we've discovered the secret that's not where the power is. The power comes from God. Verse 9, God is faithful. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. God is faithful. He is where the power comes from. For our salvation. He is where the power comes from in our instruction, in our occupation. And he is where the power comes from that would make us have any ability to have an eager anticipation for Christ's return. We sang today, a mighty fortress is our God. The name Lord Sabaoth that we sang today. That means the Lord who has never known defeat. Did you know that? The Lord, you know why he's a mighty fortress? Because he has never known defeat defeat. He's undefeated. Praise God. Let's take a minute and put our God's faithfulness on display. Let's take a look at his record, okay? Was God defeated at the fall? No. The seed of the woman was promised. What will he do? We'll crush the head of the serpent. Was God defeated by the sinfulness of man in the days of Noah? Things got pretty bad. Was God defeated then? No. No. Not at all. God brought judgment through the flood, but preserved mankind, preserved the seed in the ark through Noah and his family. How about this? After that, was God defeated when man chose to make a name for himself at the Tower of Babel? Remember, God said, be fruitful, multiply, spread all over the earth. And the people said, we don't want to. So let's build a tower that reaches up into the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. They weren't trying to be an awesome people with a great name of themselves. They were making a false god on purpose for the sole reason of giving them an excuse to disobey God. Was God defeated then? That's right. The answer is no. God confounded their languages and then spread them over all the earth his way, as he'd commanded. Uh, Was God defeated by the barrenness of Sarah? God had promised Abraham that through his seed all the nations of the earth would be blessed. God wasn't defeated by that. Even when Abraham and Sarah tried to devise their own schemes to make God's plan work in their own minds, God still gave them Isaac in their old age. Was God defeated by famine throughout the Middle East? Think a couple of generations down in the book of Genesis. Uh, famine didn't destroy the people of God. He placed Joseph in Egypt and used him And used what man had meant for evil. Think of Genesis 50. What man had meant for evil, God used for good to save many people. God wasn't defeated through that. Uh, Was he defeated by Pharaoh and Pharaoh's enslavement of the people of Israel? Well, no, absolutely not. We know that the plagues that God brought whooped out, wiped out right? Kicked the backsides of the gods of the Egyptians. God was not defeated then, and he led his people out of there and into the promised land. This list goes on and on. When Israel continually rebelled in the time of the judges and got themselves in trouble, God raised those men and women up, Deborah, to save them from their oppressors. Uh, when the king, uh, the, the people wanted, Saul, when he failed, God brought up and raised up a man after his own heart and promised that king, David, that one of his descendants would sit on the throne forever. When Haman tried to pursue a systematic genocide of the Jewish people, God raised up Esther, raised up Mordecai, and preserved his people. Go forward to the birth of Christ. When Herod heard the news about a new king of the Jews... And decreed that all the boys, two and under in Bethlehem, should be slaughtered. Was God defeated that day? No, absolutely not. God knew exactly what was happening. He talked to Moses, or Joseph Moses. He talked to Joseph and Mary. I combined Mary and Joseph into Moses. All right. He, he told them, get out of there, right? and Go down to Egypt. And he preserved the life of Christ because it wasn't his time yet. As Christ often said, it's not time. It's not time. But this Jesus heir to the throne of david seed of abraham seed of the woman what did he do on the cross when it was his time what happened to the head of that serpent <laughs> christ on the cross crushes the head of the serpent and once again our lord is sabaoth he is yet undefeated amen when that serpent might have thought he'd won, Christ proclaimed victory and rose from the grave, defeated death, proving he is the Christ and that all of God's wrath against our sin was once and for all appeased. So we have no fear or dread in that sense before a righteous God when Christ is revealed. We can look forward to that day with eager anticipation, knowing that the righteousness of Christ has been put to our account. God is faithful. He always has done what he said he was going to do. He will always do what he says he's going to do. He has never known defeat, and he will never know defeat. We want to be on that side. We want to be in him. If this is the God who has saved us, if this is the God who has given us his word for our instruction, who's given us the greatest way to live, Uh, the greatest way to fulfill his calling and purpose for our lives, which is our greatest satisfaction, our greatest joy anyways, and if this is the God who we anticipate seeing face-to-face in the person of Jesus Christ, then why would we ever look to ourselves for any power, for our own type of guidance, for our own intellect or wisdom against his will and his way? Church, he is where the power is. That's the source of power. God is the one who is faithful. So let's make not much of ourselves, right? Let's humble ourselves and make much of him. This would be kind of a silly illustration, but would you ever plug a lamp into an outlet and expect that light bulb to power up and energize the nuclear power plant? Do they all sit at their desks there with with the huge smokestacks and all the nuclear energy going on under their feet? That's kind of a scary thing to think about, isn't it? <laughs> Sitting at their desk hoping, waiting for you to turn your light switch on. Because if you don't, they can't work that day because there's no power heading their direction. That's not how it works, is it? Is God on par with a nuclear power plant? (laughs) God's power far surpasses any power that any nuclear power plant could ever hope to produce. His faithfulness far exceeds. Do we ever worry about our electricity turning on? Praise the Lord, we live in a country where we turn lights on and we always expect them to turn on, right? Not everybody in the world has that. We do. Is God's faithfulness greater even than that? Absolutely. Absolutely. we got to turn to him. We must, then church, look to our faithful God and his amazing grace for our salvation. For our salvation. Remember that we're sinners. We are hopeless outside of Christ. God, Romans 5 eight God commends his love. He shows his love towards us and that while we're still sinners not because he looked at us and said that guy is going to be great that woman is amazing no while we're still sinners god sent his son to live a perfect and sinless life perfectly fulfilling god's law and taking upon himself on the cross our sin so that we could made, be made righteous with the holy god that's god's power for our salvation if you've not put your faith and trust in that That's the gospel. If you've not put your faith and trust in that, would you do so today? The Bible tells us we repent of our sin. None of us are on the par with the glory of God. We've all fallen short. We all have sin. And if you haven't done so, would you repent of your sin today even? And put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and his finished work for your salvation. That's where the power is. God's power is for our instruction. Church, we cannot speak with any authority. We cannot speak with any authority if we are not speaking the truth of the word of God. Even our experiences can lie to us. The wisdom of man is foolishness compared to God. Our authority comes from the word of God. We must look to God for our occupation, the things that we do. God created us. He redeemed us. He sustains us. He is working to sanctify us. And he's promised to completely sanctify us. And that's all, like 100%, by his grace and for his glory. So church, he gets to call the shots. It's up to him on how we live. And we have to trust in God for our anticipation. Our best life isn't now. It's just not. It can be a great one. It can be a great one, if God is the Lord of it. But our definition of great will be different. Remember when Paul said that he can do all things through Christ who strengthens him? He had not just scored a touchdown. He had not just won the lottery. He was in prison In chains for the faith. And yet he had found all joy. And he knew life was great. Because he was exactly where God wanted him to be. Doing exactly what God had called him to do. Our God, our faithful God, has promised to make everything new. And has given us eternal life with him forever. (laughs) There will never be anything better than that. So we look forward with eager anticipation to the best life there could ever be. A life with Christ forever. Church, God knows what he's doing. And he will always prove to be faithful. So let's continually remember to humble ourselves. Let's commit to doing God's work, God's way, and for his glory you pray with me? Lord, thank you for the gifts that you give to your church. Lord, we thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ, for the gift of our salvation. God, thank you for the gift of your word, that we can know and understand it. God, thank you for the gift of our sanctification that we can hear the truth of your word and then, and then rightly apply it to our lives. And thank you for the joy that we can have as we follow your command and as we follow your will for our lives. And God, thank you for our blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great Savior, Jesus Christ. God, may we live this life in this way, your way, for your honor and glory and praise. And I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.